today, we're going to look at verse 1, with the foundation now being laid. We're going to build upon that today. And let's just quickly, before we get started, let's remind ourselves of the message last week, and then we'll get started. Last week, we talked a great deal about these folks called Judaizers. They were, as, as their name implies, they wanted to make Jews out of people. They were Christians who believed that since Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews, and since he, his father was the God of the Jews, and since he preached from the Jewish scriptures, therefore, in order to come to Christ, one must first become a Jew, because he was the Messiah to the Jews. You see how they reasoned that in their minds. And so they were teaching people that in order to be saved, Jesus only saves Jews. So you must first become a Jew. Well, the early church dealt with this whole issue, and you remember how they resolved it back in Acts chapter 15. They had this big emergency church council. Everybody got together. What do we need to determine about this? And, and you remember how all that worked out. They determined that God has already determined this. Remember, they, they looked at the episode in Acts chapter 10 of Cornelius and the salvation of Cornelius, who was an uncircumcised Gentile. And they said, God's already determined in order to be saved, one does not have to be circumcised and become a Jew. God has opened his salvation for all people. And so after this, the, these Judaizers who believed that one must need to be circumcised before one could be saved, they didn't exactly accept this, and they didn't exactly believe this. They instead continued to preach and to teach the same things. They would go everywhere that Paul was going, everywhere that Paul had left the church behind, they would go there and they would teach this false gospel. They would teach Paul is right, and Paul is wrong. Paul is right in the sense that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. But Paul is wrong when Paul says that Gentiles can be saved. Gentiles cannot be saved. You must first become a Jew in order to be saved. And so Paul refutes this sternly and strongly. He, he has stern words for these Judaizers because they were perverting the gospel of grace and they were reverting it back into some religion of dead works, some gospel of, of grace plus works. They were undoing the work of God. Man cannot save himself. Man is incapable of saving himself. And so God, therefore, sent his Son to do what we cannot do, which is provide salvation for us. And so by spreading this false gospel, they were undoing all of that. They were saying, no, no, no. Man can contribute to his own salvation. In fact, man needs to contribute to his own salvation in the way of circumcision. And Paul rejects this outright. He says, this is false. You, can, you cannot revert back to a gospel of grace plus works. And so he illustrates how this is a false gospel. Remember, he talks about how if works can do anything to save us, then, well, Paul would be leading the charge in all of that because Paul was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin and so on and so forth. So Paul was saying, if works can do anything to contribute to your salvation, I'm leading the pack when it comes to that. But those works are worthless. They, they are worthless. They, they cannot save, says Paul. And so then we summed all of this up last week with this statement. We said... The gospel plus nothing equals everything. But the gospel plus anything equals nothing. In other words, if we take the gospel of grace and we add one single requirement to it, we have voided it. It is worthless. It cannot save. And so the gospel plus anything equals nothing. 
But the gospel plus nothing, as the gospel of grace stands alone, it is all that man needs to be saved. And so that's how we concluded last week. Now all of that again was the background that's going to help us to more fully grasp this passage as we work through it. So having that background today, let's now take a look this morning at the first thing that Paul says in this passage. We briefly mentioned this last week. The first thing that Paul says is rejoice in the Lord. Now we briefly mentioned that last week, but we didn't talk much about it. But that will be the subject of the message this morning. And read once again these 11 verses from Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father God, that is what we pray for this morning, the resurrection of the dead. Lord, we look to the resurrection of our physical bodies, Lord, but now in this moment we pray for the spiritual resurrection of the spiritual dead. We pray, Lord, that you would breathe your life into those among us who do not know you. We pray, Lord, that you would re-energize your life-giving breath into those who are your children this morning, Lord, because we need the joy of the Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would do all of this, not for the glory of a man or of a woman, but for the glory of your Son, Christ Jesus alone, because it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, we've established the fact that we have now passed the main section of the letter, this section from chapter 1, verse 27, down through chapter 2, verse 18. That's the main section of the letter. In that section, Paul gives the three main exhortations that he's going to give in the letter. But nonetheless, even though we're past that section, I look at these 11 verses that I just read earlier, and in these verses, I see some of the Bible's most beloved words that speak to us. The words that Paul speaks here, Countless Christians have read these words and have pondered them in their minds, have turned them over in their minds, and they found encouragement, and they found strength, and they found, they found support in the Lord in these verses. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take our time going through these 11 verses, allowing the Apostle Paul to speak to us deeply about the main purpose that he has to say here. What Paul has to say here is, is the main point. And it's not just the main point of the letter to the Philippians, it's the main point of what Paul has to say. And it's not just the main point of what Paul has to say. It is the main point 
To a large degree, it's the main point of all of Scripture. And Paul's point in this section is this. His point is the ultimate surpassing worth of Christ. His ultimate point here is that the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus alone far outstrips every other thing on this earth, every other thing in my life. Christ is surpassing of all of that. He is the worthy one. He said in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul speaks magnificently here of the, the unequal, unparalleled worth of Christ Jesus alone. So that's what we'll be talking about over the coming weeks. Now as we begin that today, we'll be looking at the first thing that Paul has to say here. The first thing that he has to say to the Philippians is rejoice in the Lord. Verse 1, he says rejoice in the Lord. Now we know this to be the epistle of joy. No other four chapters of the Bible speak to us more often or more clearly about the joy of the Lord than these four chapters in Philippians. In fact, ten times in 106 verses, Paul speaks about the joy of the Lord. So this is the epistle of joy. But ironically, even though it's the epistle of joy, we have not talked very much about joy yet, have we? We've talked about Paul's joy. We've talked about the nature of Paul's joy and the fact that his nature or his joy is a joy that transcends earthly circumstances. His joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So it, it has nothing to do with Paul's circumstances. In fact, the more Paul seems to suffer for Christ, the more joy he seems to have. We've talked about that, but we have not yet read how Paul is going to tell us how we might have this same type of joy which is what he begins to tell us here. Take a look at verse 1. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. Now let your eyes gaze down to chapter 4, verse 4. may need to flip pages over. Chapter 4, verse 4, a very, very familiar verse from the letter to the Philippians. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So Paul says the same thing in chapter chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 4. And between those two verses, what we're going to do, those two verses, they're like bookends. They're like bookends, bookending this section that Paul is going to tell us. Among other things, he's going to tell us how it is that we might have the joy of the Lord. So, Paul tells these Philippians here, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, that is uh, something that we would refer to as an imperative, a, a command. In other words, Paul is not giving them information here. Paul's telling them what to do. He's, he's commanding them, rejoice in the Lord. He's writing to the Philippians and he's saying to them, you are to be humble people, you're to live holy lives, you are to not grumble against your spiritual leaders, you are to uh, love one another, but also you are to rejoice in the Lord. You're to have the joy of the Lord. You're to be joyful people. Have the joy of the Lord. Now, what is the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is something that, quite honestly, we we as Christians... We know that we're supposed to have it, right? The Bible tells us that we're supposed to have the joy of the Lord, and we believe the Bible. And so we know we're supposed to have the joy of the Lord, but if we're honest with ourselves, then most of us would confess that we don't necessarily always have the joy of the Lord. Maybe we have it sometimes, 
And then sometimes we don't have it. Or maybe we've never had the joy of the Lord. Maybe we really don't even know what, what that's about. So we know we're supposed to have this joy of the Lord. And furthermore, we know that we don't always have the joy of the Lord. And then that makes us feel guilty to boot. Because we know we're supposed to be joyful. And so not only are we not joyful, but oftentimes we feel guilty about not being joyful. And so Paul is writing to Philippians who really are in much the same situation as you and I are in. He's writing them and he's telling them, brothers, it should not be this way. It should not be this way. You should have the joy of the Lord. This should be a characteristic of your life. Your, your life should be characterized by the joy of the Lord. Now, what is the joy of the Lord? Let's start there. What is the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is a supernatural gift or as a supernatural delight in God and in God's goodness. It is a supernatural delight in God and God's goodness. So let's just break that down for a minute. It's a supernatural delight. What's su- what, what do I mean by supernatural? It means that's a gift from God. It's something that God must give us. We cannot manufacture it. We cannot produce it. We cannot create it. God must give it to us. It is a supernatural delight. What do I mean by delight? Well, a delight is, is nothing more than, than just an extreme feeling of pleasure or satisfaction. So the joy of the Lord is a supernatural gift from God that produces within us an extreme feeling of pleasure and satisfaction. Now, what's the object of the pleasure and satisfaction? The object is God and God's goodness. So it's this supernatural gift from God that comes to us, and when we receive it, it produces within us a feeling of extreme delight and extreme satisfaction in God and in God's goodness. It, it, is, it is a fruit of the Spirit. Remember Galatians 5, 21 and 22? The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The joy of the Lord is a gift from God, and it produces this delight in God. This is Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart. So that is the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is very much different from happiness. Although, although joy and happiness are both positive emotions, they're actually opposites of one another. Because happiness is produced by circumstances, where the joy of the Lord, again, is a gift from God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But happiness is a result of positive circumstances in our lives. In fact, this is what the word happiness means. The word happiness in in the English is nothing more than a translation of the Latin word for fortune or chance. And so that's what it used to mean, actually. You, You probably are familiar with how words can change meaning over time. Oftentimes this happens. Words will change meaning over time. If you don't believe this, then let me just... Let me just ask you, if you're here this morning and you're over 50, then when you were young, what did the word gay mean? And what does it mean today? It, it has changed meaning, hasn't it? So words change meaning over time. And the word happiness, or happy, has changed meaning over time. Up until about the 16th century, the word happy literally meant lucky. If you were happy, then you were a lucky person. That's literally what it meant. In fact, we can even still see the connection today. Can't you hear the connection in your, in your ears as you hear the word happy? Can't you hear the connection between happy and happening? Or happy, happiness and happening? Why is that? Because happiness is the result of a happening. When things in our life happen to work out well, 
that produces happiness. And when things in our life don't happen to work out well, then that fades happiness, or happiness disappears, because happiness is the result of a positive circumstance in our life. Now let me just pause and say this. You probably have all heard a sermon from a pastor about the comparisons of happiness and joy. And you probably have heard a preacher speak of happiness in a negative way, as if happiness is inferior to joy. And so, therefore, because it's inferior, because happiness is not spiritual, we should reject it and discard it. Joy is what we really want. Now listen, happiness, there's nothing negative about happiness. There's nothing that Christians should reject about happiness. We should be happy to be happy. I am happy when I'm happy. I like to be happy. I enjoy happiness. It is a blessing from God. In fact, happiness is also a gift from God, too. Because happiness results from positive circumstances in our life, Positive circumstances are a gift from God. So happiness is is something that we as Christians should embrace and should enjoy. We just should understand the differences between happiness and joy. Happiness is the result of circumstance. Joy is a gift from God. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Joy is dependent upon God. Again, the joy of the Lord is a supernatural delight in God and in God's goodness. Now, as a gift from God, it stands to reason that God gives this gift to His children. Which is precisely what Paul is going to say here. But then Paul is also going to go on to say a little bit more. He's going to say, not only is it a gift that God gives to His children, it is only a gift that God gives to His true children and none others. Take a look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul tells the Philippians here, rejoice in the Lord, have the joy of the Lord, and then he immediately connects that joy with the presence of the Spirit. Let's connect Paul's dots here. Paul says, rejoice with this supernatural joy of the Lord because you are the true children of God as evidenced by the presence of the Spirit in your worship. That's Paul's progressive. Can you see that there? Paul's, Paul connects the presence of the Spirit with the presence of the joy of the Lord. You cannot have the one without the other. Now, in fact, Paul is going to connect, make the same connection two other times in the letter to the Philippians. He's going to connect the presence of the Spirit with the joy of the Lord. He does it for the first time in chapter 2, verse 1. Take a look at that. He says there, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In other words, Paul says, if you Philippians are participating, or you're koinonia, you're sharing in the same Spirit as I am, then you will complete my joy by being of the same mind. Or, in other words, if you Philippians are not sharing in the same Spirit as me, then you cannot complete my joy. You see, without the presence of the Spirit, there's no joy of the Lord. Paul makes this connection once again in chapter 4, verse 4. Take a look at those verses. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, what do you suppose Paul means when he says the Lord is at hand? I know we had not covered chapter 4 yet, but when we get there, I'm going to argue that Paul is not talking when he says the Lord is at hand. He's not saying that Jesus is coming back soon. 
Although he is. That's just not what Paul's talking about. What Paul means when he says the Lord is at hand, he means the Lord's already here. His Spirit is at hand with you there. And because the Spirit is present, you therefore have reason to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So you see, three times Paul connects the presence of the Spirit with the joy of the Lord. And this is what Paul is saying here. There is no joy of the Lord unless the Spirit is present, unless you truly belong to God. Now this may sound overly basic and overly simplistic, but I think it needs to be said. There are so many who faithfully sit in the pews every Sunday morning, and there are so many who faithfully come to our churches every Sunday morning, who are trying to have the fruit of Christ without having the life of Christ. There are so many who are so desperately trying to have the fruit of Christ without abiding in the vine that is Christ. There are so many that are trying to have the joy of Christ without having the salvation of Christ. And friend, there's no joy. There is no joy in the Lord for the enemies of God. It is a gift that God gives to His children and God does not give this gift to His enemies. So there is only joy in the Lord for those who are truly the children of God. I know this sounds elementary, but there are so many who seem to ignore this and they try to get the cart in front of the horse and they try to reap the benefits of being in the family of God without actually being in the family of God. If this morning, if your life is devoid of joy, if your life experiences periods of happiness that that are attached to, to the changing circumstances in your life, but there is no abiding, remaining joy, then the first thing to ask yourself this morning is, who is my father? Am I in Christ? Is the Spirit present in me? Because if the Spirit of God is not in you, then you will never have the joy of the Lord. You will have passing happiness and passing sadness, but you will not have abiding joy. So that's the first question to ask. But is Paul writing here to save people or unsaved people? Save people. He's writing to save Philippians, right? So he knows that they have the Spirit of Christ. In fact, that's what he says in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul is writing to Philippians who are the same as many of us right now. We are the true people of God. We are the real circumcision. The Spirit of God is in us. But like the Philippians, the joy of the Lord is not necessarily in us or not in us at all times. And so what Paul is going to go on to tell the Philippians here is how they might have the joy of the Lord. In fact, this is, this is one reason why it was so important to lay that foundational groundwork last week because that will really help us to understand what Paul has to say about receiving the joy of Christ today. So what Paul is going to say to the Philippians is Here is how you have the joy of the Lord. Now, I'm saying right now, stop the presses. Because, did you not just say earlier that the joy of the Lord is a gift from God? Did you not say that it is a supernatural gift from God? And what is a gift if it's not freely given? How can it be a gift if we've got to do something to get it? 
That's not a gift. That's a wage. So if the joy of the Lord is a gift from God, then why do we have to do anything to get it? Furthermore, why doesn't every Christian have it? If the joy of the Lord is a gift from God, then then why do the Philippians not have it? Did God forget to give it to them? Or maybe did God give it to them with with an expiration date? You know, like a gallon of milk. Here's your joy of the Lord. It's good for two weeks. Two weeks later, I'll give you more joy of the Lord. What, why do the Philippians need to do anything to have it? And why don't all Christians have it? If it is a gift from God, why don't we just automatically have it? Now, to understand this, it's helpful for us to remind ourselves that, that the joy of the Lord is a gift from God. But God gives us two kinds of gifts. God gives us unconditional gifts, and He gives us conditional gifts. First of all, unconditional gifts. Can you think of an unconditional gift that God gives us? What about rain? That's pretty unconditional. I don't do anything to deserve rain. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 5, 45, that he calls his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. We do Rain dances don't work, okay? We don't do anything to deserve rain. Now, outside of some strange circumstances, like Elijah, the story of Elijah, rain is an unconditional gift from God. Can you think of another one? What about the big one? Salvation. Salvation is an unconditional gift from God. That's the whole point of Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, not the result of works. It is the gift of God. Salvation is an unconditional gift from God. In fact, this is the whole point that Paul goes on to talk about, is that these Judaizers, they're trying to take the unconditional gift of God and make it conditional. They're trying to apply the condition of circumcision onto the unconditional gift of salvation. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, that doesn't work. Salvation is an unconditional gift from God. So God gives us unconditional gifts. He also gives us conditional gifts. And if you're a parent, you understand the difference. If you have children, I promise you that you have given your children both types of gifts. You have given them unconditional gifts. Your love should be unconditional. Uh, but you've also given your, your children conditional gifts, haven't you? You've, you've probably said things like, like this. If you make all ends, I will give you $50. That's a conditional gift. If you do this, I will give you that. Right? That's a conditional gift. God does the same thing for us. Can you think of one? My mind went to Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways and humble themselves and seek my, my face I will hear from heaven and I will heal their, heal their land. Is that, is that a conditional gift? If my people do this and this and this, I will do this and this and this. It's a conditional gift from God. This joy of the Lord is of the same nature. It is a gift from God that God attaches conditions to. So, if you are here this morning and you are struggling with joy in your life, then let me just say for the next few minutes, please listen closely. And pay attention because this is what Paul is going to tell us about. How it is that we may have this joy of the Lord, this abiding joy of the Lord. Now, Scripture will speak to us many times about what it is that we are to do in order to feed the gift of the joy of the Lord. And Scripture, for the sake of time, we were going to go through several of these. Um, there's three main things. In fact, they're all in your bulletin notes right there. I'll encourage you, all the scriptures are there. You can read them and study them on your own. 
But Scripture tells us, first of all, the first thing, the first primary thing that we are to do in order to feed the, the joy of the Lord is Scripture intake. Over and over again, Scripture will connect the joy of the Lord with the intake of the Scriptures. The intake of God's Word will make that connection over and over. Now, the second thing that Scripture often connects with the joy of the Lord is obedience to the Scriptures that we're reading. So Scripture makes that connection. If you want the joy of the Lord, it comes through intaking of His Scripture. And if you want the joy of the Lord, it comes from obeying, obeying, did I just make up a word? It comes from obeying the Scriptures that you're intaking. So there's the things to ask, or there's the things for us to ask ourselves right there. If you are struggling with joy in your life, first of all, ask yourself, am I a child of Christ? If the answer is yes, and I still do not have the joy of the Lord, then ask yourself the next question, am I intaking Scripture? And if the answer to that is yes, then ask yourself the question, okay, am I obeying the Scripture that I'm intaking? Scripture tells us very clearly and very plainly, again, it's in your notes, that all those are connected. Now, those are not what Paul talks about in this passage. So for the sake of time, we're going to just skip over to what Paul does talk about in this passage. And Paul makes a third connection here in this passage, and he says this, the joy of the Lord comes through meditating on the true gospel of grace. The joy of the Lord comes to us through meditating on the true gospel of grace. Take a look at verse 1. Verse 1, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. Then drop down to verse 9. He says this, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Joy, the joy of the Lord, Paul is talking about in this passage, it comes from meditating on the gospel of grace. Paul's point here is that these Judaizers, they have distorted and they have perverted the gospel of grace. They have added on to the gospel of grace a requirement that God didn't add. They've added circumcision onto the gospel of grace and they've added sacrifices and they've added, they've added following the Jew, Jewish dietary laws onto the gospel of grace. And Paul says, if you listen to what they are saying, that will destroy your joy. It will destroy your joy if you listen to the false gospel that says you are saved by grace plus works. When we daily remind ourselves of the true gospel of grace, the gospel that says we are saved purely, not by anything that we do, but purely by the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. When we meditate on that, when that thought is first and foremost in our minds, that produces the joy of the Lord. This is the whole point that Paul is getting at in this whole section here, is that these this false gospel that the Judaizers are spreading, they're spreading this false gospel. And what does the false gospel say? It says, it goes something like this. It says, God saves you by His power, but you need to help Him out a little bit. He needs your help. He needs your righteousness to be added to His righteousness in order to save you. You must do something it's small, it's insignificant, it's nothing really. You know, circumcision, it's not that big a deal. The, the Jewish sacrifices, they're not that big a deal. The dietary laws, you can do them. 
So it's not that much, but it is something that you must do in order to qualify yourself to receive salvation. And the gospel that the Judaizers are spreading says something like this. You stand before God as righteous, mostly because of Christ, but partly because of you. Mostly because of Him, but partly because of you. Because, you know what, you were smart enough to know that you needed to receive circumcision. You were smart enough to know that although you weren't born a Jew, you needed to now be circumcised, you needed to become a Jew, you needed to offer the sacrifices, you needed to follow the dietary laws and all that. You were smart enough, so you had to add that little bit of your righteousness to the righteousness of Christ. And Paul's whole point is this. Rejoice in the Lord because that's precisely how you don't come to Christ. Rejoice in the Lord because that is exactly how not to come to Christ. There is no joy in finding our standing before God to be based on anything that we have done. There is no joy in that whatsoever. To think that we are accepted by God because of something that we have done, that is not joy, that is a roller coaster of frustration and misery. Here's what I mean. Let me just paint two scenarios, and I think this will illustrate what I'm talking about. Tomorrow morning, you set your alarm clock for an hour and a half early. Alarm goes off, you hop out of bed, spend 45 minutes in prayer, 45 minutes in Bible study, then you have breakfast with your family, you show selfless love to your wife at breakfast, you show patience to your children, and then you go to work, on the way to work, you let everybody get in in front of you, you, go to, you get to work, you work hard all day, and like Paul says, that's working for the Lord, not for man, and you do your best job all day long, you forgive co-workers who offend you, you are kind to your boss who hates you. You, do, you, you're, you. you display Christian qualities all day. You get off work. You come back home. You get home. You have a, a nice meal with your family. Again, you show Christian love at the dinner table. You have family devotions once again. Spend another 30 minutes in prayer. Then you go to bed. Now, as your head hits the pillow, how do you feel? Good or bad? Good, don't you? Now, the next day comes, the alarm goes off again an hour and a half early. You uh, don't hop out of bed. In fact, you turn the alarm off. And then you get up late for work. You're late. You're now rushed. And so because you're rushed, you snap at your wife. You're mean to her. You go to the breakfast table. You snap at your kids. You're, you're late getting to work. So you instead of letting people in front of you, you cut them off. And you flip them off while you're doing it. You get to work. You get in a fight with your boss. You get in a fight with your co-workers. You display an unchristian attitude all day long. You get off work. You come home, have another fight over the dinner table. Then you watch a movie that you know you're not supposed to watch. Then you go to bed. How do you feel that night? Good or bad? Bad. What's the difference between the two? You're still the same person in Christ. The difference was your performance for God. The difference is, on day number one, you performed well for God. And you went to bed feeling good. On day number two, you performed poorly for God. And you went to bed feeling bad. You see the connection that I'm making there? The connection is this. It is so easy. It is so easy to get sloppy in our thinking and it is so easy to get sloppy in our personal theology and allow the things that we do for God to bleed over into who we are with God. See how easy that is to do. 
It is so easy, brothers and sisters, to allow our performance for God to tell us who we are in God. This is precisely what the Judaizers were doing. We don't go around talking about circumcision and sacrifices like they did. But we have lists of do's and don'ts, don't we? Now please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying because it's very easy to misunderstand me right now. So listen closely. I am not saying that we should not live moral lives. I'm not saying that we should not make time for Bible study and prayer. I'm not even saying that when we do those things, we shouldn't feel good. We should. What I'm saying is we must daily work to separate into a separate compartment what we do for God compared to who we are in God. We must work at that daily. We must put effort into that daily to separate our performance and what we have done for God and what we have failed to do for God. That must be separated from who we are in God. And if we don't make that separation like the Judaizers didn't, if we don't make that separation, then we will have no joy. If we allow what we do for God to bleed over into our thinking of who we are in God, then we will live a Christian life that is filled with happiness and sorrow, but no joy. We will have times of happiness, and we will have times of sorrow and frustration, but we will not have joy. Why is that? Where does happiness come from? Circumstances. And when the circumstances of our lives are allowing us to to be obedient and to perform well for God, we will experience happiness. But when the circumstances of our lives are not allowing us to be obedient, we're not obeying, we're not, we're not being godly people, then we will experience sadness and frustration, but we will experience no joy. Why? Because you have believed the gospel of grace, you have accepted the gospel of grace, but you are nonetheless not living the gospel of grace. Because in your flesh, in your human nature, you desperately want to think of yourself as earning some favor with God. You desperately want to think of yourself as the the good things that you're doing are, are providing me some positive standing with God. You desperately want to think that. And the enemy knows it. And the enemy uses that to his advantage. And he whispers things in your ear like this. Tell me if you've ever heard anything like this. You didn't read your Bible today. You didn't pray today. You acted selfishly today. You were rude today. Do you really think that God is pleased? And brothers and sisters, you must separate in your mind the difference between God being pleased with what you do and God being pleased with you. If you don't make that separation, if you allow the two of those things to mix together, it will rob your joy. It will steal your joy. And this is why Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on to tell them about the false gospel that the Judaizers are telling. He calls them dogs and mutilators of the flesh and evildoers because their gospel is worthless. Their gospel is is not only worthless because it doesn't save, but it's worthless because it steals the joy of those who are saved. Because it tells those who are saved that you came to Christ by what you did. And if you came to Christ by what you did, then you can also do something to separate you from Christ. 
In Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about the gospel of grace and he finishes that chapter this way by saying there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. That is the joy of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, it is something that you must fight for daily. It is not something that, that God's going to give you and then, okay, now i got it, I'm going to hang it on the wall like a trophy. There it is, let me look at it. It is something that you must fight for daily. You must fight for it with your intake of Scripture. You must fight for it in your obedience to Scripture. And you must fight for it by meditating daily on the gospel of grace. Reminding yourself that you stand before God as righteous. Just as righteous as His Son. Not because you had a good day. Not because you fasted. Or because you prayed. Or because you read your Bible. Or because you acted selflessly. But you stand before Him righteous because the Lamb is righteous. And you are in union with the Lamb who stands before God as perfectly righteous. It is only there that we find the joy of the Lord.